Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. It says that we'll be looking at verse 8 through 20. I'm going to start a little earlier for context. Now we are considering again this morning the wonderful birth of the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week we saw how even the rulers and the Caesars of this world unwittingly carry out the the sovereign decrees of our God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We saw how all things are under his sway, and it was his plan and his promise for the Savior of the world to be born of a virgin, to be born of the line of David, to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. And all these things have now come to pass, but it is especially the lowliness of his birth that is so striking. Joseph and Mary are now almost completely alone, if not completely alone. Perhaps there are animals nearby. And the Lord of all is wrapped in swaddling claws and has been laid in a manger. A king has been born, but where are his subjects? Where are the heralds of the good news? Where is his dignity and honor? Listen how God announces the birth and his mission for his son to be in the world. Luke chapter 2, I'll begin with verse 7. This is God's word. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see what you have to teach us in your word, 
that we would be filled with wonder and awe and praise, just like the shepherds here and the angels. Help us, Lord, to consider again what a great gift you gave when you gave us yourself, when you gave us your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you're checking your calendar, you are not mistaken. It is February. You may have had a, a sense of deja vu through this whole service. It wasn't very long ago when I was preaching through this very same passage on Christmas. Uh, but this is a passage full of wonder. It is worth our repeated reflection and meditation. Nevertheless, I'm going to try to draw out some new considerations. Actually, as I was going over this, I thought maybe I could preach another sermon on this next week, but I won't. There's, uh, there is so much in this passage. Now, I'm not going to draw out the story verse by verse, but rather a few main points for us to consider. First, the lowliness of the Savior. Secondly, the majesty of the Savior. And thirdly, the juxtaposition of these two wonderful facts. What it means that they are united, the majesty and the lowliness together. Now the first thing we see here in this birth is that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly human. Though the condition of his birth was different than yours, you were probably born in a hospital or something like that. The time, the place is different. Jesus entered the world the same way each of you entered the world. He was born, born of a woman. He doesn't fly down on a cloud like the way he will return. He doesn't appear in a, a flaming bush. He doesn't appear as a full-grown man. He is born. Jesus became man. God has, has voluntarily identified himself with us. It's a little bit hard not to be surprised at this in some ways because we always think of Jesus as a man. But that is a rather new thing. For eternity, he was the son of God. The angels must be in complete amazement that the one that they worship, that they've served for so long, is a, is a human now. God identified himself of all creation with us, with humans. He took on human nature. And while he did this, he does not subtract anything from the divine nature, that he did not and cannot change anything about the Godhead because God cannot change. He is perfect. But now he has added to this an earthly nature as well, a human nature. The Ancient of Days now has an earthly beginning. The Creator has become creation. He who fills all things has become tiny. He who fills all things, who gives food to everyone, gives life and breath 
to all living creatures, has himself become needy, hungry, and weak. Why, if he had been born in the most opulent palace, in the most splendid city in all the world, it would still have been an act of incredible condescension. But he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in some grand city. He was, he was born on the outskirts, as it were, of the little town of Bethlehem, a place, Micah says, that's too little to even be named among the clan of Judah. He is born in a, a lowly place. He is practically outside. He is in a stable. His mother is there, wrapping him, holding him, nursing him, doing all the things that new mothers do. His earthly father, no doubt, is doing all the things that new fathers do, which is trying to figure out what to do. There's an umbilical cord to deal with. I don't want to be graphic, but there's a placenta. There's an unclean environment that, this needs, that needs to be dealt with. I always wonder when I see the manger scenes, who cleaned up in here? Where's all the blood? The blood that would soon save the world is probably already on Joseph's hands. He's exhausted. He's dirty. They're in the darkness, trying to give birth to a baby, probably already feeling like failures. This is an incredibly low condition for the Son of God up here. How silently, how silently the gift is given. It appears from verse 7 that Mary wraps up Jesus herself, implying that there is no midwife here. They are alone. The Lord of glory is laid in a feeding trough for animals, probably just a little ditch in the ground with some hay in it. This is hard to consider, this picture. We would not want to give birth in such a place, in such a condition. But the Son of God has taken it all on. The, the giving of birth of children, part of that is part of the curse that was given in Genesis chapter 3, that it would be difficult, that it would be painful. Jesus enters into that. Already the suffering has begun. And what a way for the Son of God to come to earth. Now soon there will be shepherds there to witness this scene. They will have a glorious story to tell. And they have seen glorious things this night. But if you were to observe this scene, you would see nothing but lowliness and obscurity and suffering. Now the shepherds themselves are lowly. True, they're probably caring for sheep that will be set apart for temple sacrifice. That's notable. True, they are shepherds in the very same place where King David had been a shepherd. That's got to be something to be proud of. And that David has been mentioned, I think, six times already in Luke, three times in our passage. It could say, they could have said he's born in Bethlehem. They say he's born in the city of David. This is emphasized for us. And Luke might be stressing this for us. 
But nonetheless, they are still shepherds, and shepherds were lowly. Because of the nature of their work, they were perpetually unclean. They were dirty. They were often considered unreliable and untrustworthy, even though it seems that these shepherds were godly men. So the testimony of shepherds was not even considered valid in a court of law. Only lepers were considered a lower class than shepherds. So everything about this scene shows obscurity, lowliness, humility, and suffering. And now that and notice also how the shepherds are directed to find him. The angel doesn't say, you will find a baby uh, wrapped uh, in a certain color cloth, or he'll be bald, or he'll have curly hair. He doesn't say how we would direct it. You know, you would, the, the mother's name Mary, the father's Joseph, they look like this. Nothing like that. The only distinguishing thing about this baby is where it is. There, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths that's normal, laid in a manger. That's not normal. This, the only distinctive identifying attribute given about this baby is that he will be the lowest baby in the whole town. There will not be another baby in a more pitiable condition than this one. Go find the baby that outwardly looks least likely to be the king. That's him. That's how you'll find him. Wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. That's how you'll know you've found the king of all. The Venerable Bede, the 8th century English monk, wrote, It should be carefully noted that the sign given of the Savior's birth is not a child enfolded in Tyrian purple, but one wrapped round with rough pieces of cloth. He is not to be found in an ornate golden bed, but in a manger. The meaning of this is that he did not merely take upon himself our lowly mortality, but for our sakes took upon himself the clothing of the poor. Let us then learn, for one, not to despise the lowly. God became like the lowly. He became lowly. Now consider this. They're not checking into the Ritz tomorrow either. The lowliness that is on display here is the pattern for Christ's entire life. The Son of Man would have nowhere to lay his head in his ministry just as he had nowhere to lay his head when he was born. He was born around animals. He will die between criminals. He was born in a borrowed stable. He will ride into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, eat supper in a borrowed room, be crucified on a borrowed cross, be buried in a borrowed tomb. He, he dies with nothing. Everything he has is given away. His clothes the last remaining possessions that he had are divided up before him while he's still hanging there on the cross alive. His mother he entrusts to his disciple John. His love, his joy, his peace he gives to his disciples. His body goes to Joseph of Arimathea. His soul he entrusts to his heavenly father. He dies 
having absolutely nothing left to claim as his own. I want you to know this morning that Jesus made himself lowly for you, for your sake. He who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, became poor. He became sin that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the amazing thing about this. Not just his lowliness, but that he did it for you. He became accessible to the very lowest so that you would know this morning that he is accessible to you. We see it in the Lord's Supper as well this morning. That Jesus, he takes the cup of suffering, the cup of cursing, and he drains it to its dregs that he might give you the cup of blessing. You know, when he preached his first recorded sermon in Luke, Luke chapter 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your clothes look like, how long your record is, how many failures you've piled up. Friend, there is a Savior born for you. You are not too lowly for him. He was made lowest of all. And I should add, there is no other Savior. If you are saved, you must find your salvation in him. Consider that too. There is a Savior for you, and there is no other. I want you to secondly consider his majesty. Alongside this obscurity and this lowliness, somewhere out there in the fields, there is a glorious scene going on. An angel of the Lord is there. The glory of the Lord, that same glory that filled the tabernacle and the priest couldn't even enter it, the glory of the Lord is there around them. The it illumines the fields, it illumines the flocks, illumines the shepherds. The gospel of the Lord is proclaimed. And then a multitude of this heavenly army fills the sky and sings praises to God. You see, mixed in with Christ's lowliness, God occasionally gives us just a glimpse of the glory that's there perhaps so that we might remember who Jesus really is and not stumble over his lowliness. At his birth, there is this angelic scene. Soon when he tells his disciples about how he must suffer and die on the cross, he will be transfigured before them. And when he dies, there will be darkness in the middle of the day, there will be an earthquake, there will be resurrections, there will be the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. And so it is here, there is glory along with this lowly scene. Hebrews 1.6 says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's part of what we're seeing here the angels of the Lord, God's angels, worshiping the firstborn. 
the glorious angels worship Jesus. So don't be blinded by his lowliness. We have to learn to live not by sight, but by faith, knowing who he is really. Matthew Henry wrote, when we see where he is born, we are tempted to say, surely this cannot be the Son of God. But when we see his birth attended with a choir of angels, we shall say, surely this can be no other but the Son of God. Oh, it is a wonderful scene. There, there are promises here of peace. There is a message of joy and of salvation. And each of these are worthy of our reflection. There is peace, peace with God. The, the long fight against God, the rebellion, it is over. And if there is a fight with God, it must, it must end with us being defeated. We cannot win a fighting against God, but God has made a way where we could be reconciled, where peace could come, not because of our victory over him, but because of his sacrifice for us and uniting us to himself. There is this peace, and peace is a wonderful word, you know, in Hebrew, encapsulating really your entire life, this shalom, this uh, everything made right. There is also joy, joy unspeakable. Solid joys and lasting treasures only Zion's children know. And that's what's proclaimed here. Joy again and again and again in these first two chapters of Luke alongside salvation. There is joy, there is peace, and there is the removal of fear. I mean, if you see one angel, you're afraid. If you see an army of angels at your doorstep, you're probably very afraid. But this army is not here to fight the shepherds. It's not here to conquer. They are there to proclaim peace. They are there to proclaim the birth of their king, Jesus Christ. Now, all the salvation that they sing, that they announce, this peace, this joy, this salvation, none of it is abstract. It is all bound up in a person, in a savior, in this little baby. And the angels don't mention his name, but they do share three titles. As Savior, he will deliver his people from their sins by his voluntary atoning death. As Christ, he is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will be the prophet, the priest, the king of his people. And as Lord, he is God himself. Lord is used, I think, every time so far in Luke to refer to God himself. Here, these three titles are brought together in one verse. He is Savior, He is Christ, He is the Lord. All of these things will help show who He is and also His mission, what He has been sent to do. There is a Savior for you. They don't need to tell the shepherds, go find Him. I mean, if you, if you were single and you, you were, you're told you are going to find your wife today in downtown Charleston, you wouldn't have to be told, go. 
You'd be, you'd be out the door. You know, this is a great day. The Savior, you will find a Savior in Bethlehem today. Your Savior. So they don't need to be told to go. They gladly go. Uh, just like Mary, it seems, went to Elizabeth's home at the announcement of the angel. So this baby is going to be the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the one who will bring the joy, the one who will make peace with God. He is the one who saves. And that is what he will do. This, this child lying in the dirt is the Savior and the Christ and the Lord. And everything you see here, the angels, the shepherds, the animals, the dirt that he lies on, you and me, all of these things were created by him and for him. That is amazing. That is incredible. The creator of the world. He is, that is majesty. That is glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here he is, a lowly baby. And finally, I want you to consider the juxtaposition of these two things, this lowliness and the majesty, together. And this is just as crucial because if God is just transcendently great and too great to, to look upon, then how can we be saved? How can we ever be with him? And if he's just the lowest of all, how can he raise us up? How can he save us? We need the Savior to be both transcendent and imminent. We need him to be God and man. We need him to be great and good. And that is what he is. He is both. He is the man from heaven. God and man in one person. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Lion and the Lamb. Majestic and merciful. He is Emmanuel. God with us. In him, heaven and earth have met. And I think, consequently, there is a reflection of what has happened in him out in the field. A flock of shepherds, a flock of sheep, rather, a group of shepherds, and a glorious angelic army are there meeting. Heaven and earth are meeting out in the fields now that heaven and earth have been united in a baby. It is almost a reflection of what's going on with the Son of God. It's a little picture of heaven, a representative meeting of all creation. Animals, men, angels. Angels and men will be proclaiming good news and worshiping God. It's interesting to see if we were spent more time on the second half of this passage, that the shepherds will go out almost as an echo, as an imitation of the angels. The angels first proclaim the good news, then they worship. The shepherds go, also proclaim the good news to everyone around, and then in verse 
20, it says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. They are in imitation of the angels. It is, it is what we pray when we say, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have angels and men proclaiming the good news and worshiping God together. This was God's plan for the fullness of time. Galatians 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And Ephesians 1 tells us the purpose, the big plan for that. It says, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time again, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is a glimpse of what the God-man has come to do, to unite heaven and earth together. And it's already happening in the fields in Bethlehem. The angels proclaim and worship. The shepherds, in echo of heaven, also proclaim and worship. You know, I think there's only one other place before this in Scripture where men behold angels worshiping. Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord and there are seraphim around him crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But now the shepherds see the whole sky filled with angels worshiping. I would suspect that this is the greatest concert that has ever occurred on earth. Would you like to be there? Would you like to worship with them? Well, brothers and sisters, you will. More than that, you already do. Every time we come together to worship. You have to live by faith, not by sight, remember. But Hebrews 12 tells us, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator. That is the reality of what is happening every time we come together to worship. Our worship is joined together with those angels, with those shepherds, no doubt, in heaven now. Our praise is gathered together in this glorious, this symphony of praise being poured out for the Creator for whom we were all made, Jesus Christ. Isn't it a glorious thought? The God-man has been born, and heaven and earth will thus unite in His wake, or rather in Himself. This wonderful this wonderful reality is all possible because the Son of God took on flesh and identified himself with us. He has united heaven and earth 
in himself. And it is remarkable to think he unites us to himself as his people, his body, his bride. He offers himself for us as our food, as our life. The one in whom all history finds its purpose unites you to himself. This, this is breathtakingly extravagant. This is beyond all comprehension. It is the mystery of mysteries. The Son of God has become man. He unites us to himself that we might be raised to heaven, that we might dwell with him. So what now? You, like the shepherds, you've heard the good news. You've heard of your Savior. Shall we not also, like the angels, like the shepherds, go to him? Shall we not also proclaim him to others? Shall we not also worship him and enjoy him? For brothers and sisters, that day in the city of David, there was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would help amaze us again at what you have done, who you are, the wonderful privilege that we have offered to us in the gospel. Your Son, come to earth, not to destroy us, but to save us, to bring us to you, to raise us, not just from the dead, but to raise us to be enthroned with him in the heavenly places. Lord, help us to live for you. We belong to you. Make us the way you want us to be, as your people. And help us to enjoy you, to proclaim you, to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.